Right. Stand with me, uh, if you're able, as we hear the word of the Lord. Now, our sermon today is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Um, We'll go to the Lord in prayer before Levi joins us. Lord, we, we do thank you that you are with us this morning. We should say we're with you. You've called us into your presence and your spirit is here among us. We thank you that you brought Levi to us and for the faithfulness of all saints as they have provided with us with uh, men who are bold in proclaiming the good news, proclaiming your word. Pray that you would help us to attend to that this morning and that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. We thank you that you've given us your word and We will hear, Lord, it's such a great uh, and wonderful thing to consider, not that we're working out our salvation so much as your spirit is working that out in us. Pray that you would help us to hear and go forth walking in that good news and pray that you would guide Levi as he proclaims your word, give him strength and boldness and guide us all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, John, and uh, thank you, everyone, uh, who is uh, leading us in our uh, service so far this morning. Uh, it is a real uh, privilege to be back here with you all again. Uh, I'm always uh, thankful for opportunities to be with you and to worship with you. Uh, it really is a, pre- uh, a pleasure and a privilege uh, to get to open up uh, God's Word. Uh, so if you have not yet already, uh, please turn with me to Philippians Uh, as John has just read. Uh, It's not a long passage, uh, two verses. Doesn't seem like very much to cover uh, just in one sermon, Uh, but there's a lot packed into just this this small sentence as as John prayed and as John talked about. And uh, there are very common ways that we can err uh, if we don't really take time to slow down and to think about what Paul is saying here and and what the Spirit is is speaking through uh, his apostle. And I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we're all sons and daughters of the Reformation. And uh, we, we know how much the church uh, had strayed from, uh, from the doctrines uh, that it uh, had once been founded upon, especially that all-important doctrine of justification by faith alone, and how uh, the Reformation was a rediscovery of that and a Reformation of bringing us back to that. Uh, so whenever we hear the words work, and salvation uh, next to each other, uh, our theological spidey sense can kind of go off and we can uh, get a little nervous. Uh, we can wonder what exactly is going on. But this is what Paul tells us to do. This is the imperative 
in our passage this morning, that we are to work out our salvation. So what does he mean? What does he mean precisely? That's, that's our goal this morning, to, to unpack uh, these issues. Uh, what does working out our salvation look like? How does that look in our daily life? How do we do that? What are we actually accomplishing when we do this biblically? So those are the questions before us. They're important questions. Salvation is the most important thing that we can consider and talk about in this life. Uh, so uh, as John has already prayed, would you uh, bow your heads with me again uh, in prayer? And let's pray for the illuminating spirit uh, to help us and aid us during this time. Heavenly Father, we do pray uh, for your spirit, uh, that it would illuminate uh, your word to us, uh, that it would work in our hearts this morning, in our, in our lives, that we would attend diligently uh, to your word as we hear it, uh, uh, as we've heard it read, as we hear it preached. Uh, Lord, I pray that I would not be preaching my own words, but only your words, and that I would make much of your great name uh, through everything that I say now. So be with us this morning. Do that work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning, it begins with the always helpful word, therefore. Uh, that word should always make us alert. It, it's letting us know that uh, Paul is forming, forming a conclusion. He's summarizing something about what he's already talked about before. So what did come before? Last week, Nick, he preached on one of the most excellent, one of the most amazing and beautiful texts in all of Scripture, uh, that, that Christ hymn in, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, all about the majesty and glory uh, of the example of the God-man, of Jesus Christ. And now, right after that incredible Christ-exalting hymn, uh, Paul moves immediately into this practical application. Because all this is true, here's what you ought to be doing, and he makes this plea to them that they ought to keep doing what they've been doing, not only when he was with them, but so much more even while he's absent. Now, it's easy for them to be on fire for Christianity and for what Paul is preaching to them and teaching them while he was there, and you, you get that sense. If, if Paul was here today in this room, uh, you get the sense that he's a really energetic, charismatic leader. He'd have us all pumped up and be willing to run through the brick wall in the back if we needed to. But that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, don't lose that same energy that you had when I was with you, but keep working at it. Don't grow complacent. Don't stop doing good. Don't lose the faith. Keep up the effort. Don't forget last week. Don't forget the example of Christ, how he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, was obedient, obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And since Christ has obeyed, therefore, Paul says, you also obey. Because Christ obeyed, we obey. So that's the connection that Paul's making in this, this second chapter of Philippians so far. Because if we jump back to chapter 2, verse 1, uh, because you are to share one mind together, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which itself is the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 5. And because this is what Christ has done, he humbled himself, was obedient unto death, verses 6 through 11. Therefore, you also obey, verses 12 and 13, our verses this morning. 
Because all this is true, we obey. And what does it mean to obey? Well, Paul says that means working out your salvation. Okay. So the imperative this morning is clear. Work out your salvation. That's what we're called to do. But what exactly does that mean? Or how are we supposed to accomplish it? What does it even look like if we were to accomplish it? What, what part are we doing? What part are we playing? What does it mean for us to work out our salvation? And we can say it like this, is that God works in, but we work out. God's work and our work. And those prepositions are so vital. There is God's work there, and there is our work. We do have work to do, but our work is outward. God is the only one that is working in. And I hope those, that distinction will become more clear as we go along. And so in order to make that uh, more clear, I want to look at three different aspects about working out our salvation, three different facets about how we work out and God works in, three different elements that come right out from the text that describe working out our salvation. And so let's look at these together. And the first thing we see is that working out our salvation looks like continuous obedience to God's law. That's what it looks like, practically speaking, obedience, continuous obedience to God's law. Paul begins the section, he says, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. Obedience and work are synonymous here. They define one another. To work out one's salvation is the same thing, Paul says, as to obey. Okay, but what is the object of that obedience? What are we supposed to be working on? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be obeying? Well, our uh, shorter catechism is, is so helpful here. It puts it very simply. Uh, question 39, what duty does God require of man? That's obedience to his revealed will. That's what God requires. Well, you say, wh what is God's revealed will? What is his will for my life? Is there not some sort of, of rule or something that would make this simpler? Yeah, the catechism, again, is helpful. Helps us in the very next question. The rule which God has revealed to man for his obedience is the moral law. Okay, but, but the moral law, well, what does that mean? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Question 41. Well, there's Ten Commandments. Well, that seems like a lot to remember. Is there an abridged version or something? Can you, can you summarize these Ten Commandments for me? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourselves. See, it gets pretty simple when we break it down like that, when we get down to it. There's nothing unclear, there's nothing secretive about God's will for our lives. We can often get into this trap of trying to, to think and figure it out and praying to God for what his will for our life is. God, what is your will for my life? Can you just speak to me? Can you show me what you would want me to do? God has already told us 
what his will for our life is, what we ought to do. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You know it. I was recently teaching on 1 Thessalonians at All Saints, uh, my home church, and it's such a wonderful letter. And in it, in chapter 4, Paul's moving to a similar place in that letter as to here in Philippians, moving to a practical part of the letter. And he tells them in chapter 4, this is the will of God for you. What is it? It's your sanctification, Paul says. We could say your holiness. You're being set apart. God's will for your life is that you become more and more Christ-like, that you be conformed to the image of his son. So it's not overly complicated. And, and yes, we do. We, we should. We ought to pray for wisdom. We should pray for discernment. We should lift up those big uh, situations in our lives, those big decisions. We should lift them up to God because it's not always clear what job we should take, where we should move, whom we should marry. All of those things can be big questions that we need to uh, bring to God and seek his counsel in them and the counsel of others. But God's will in each and every, in all situations, in every big decision of our lives, his will is the same. And it's that we would be conformed to the image of his son. His will is that we would be a a Psalm 1 Christian, that we would love his law, that we would delight upon his law, that we would meditate upon his law and his word, make it our daily and nightly ritual to always be immersed in his word, to always be immersed and delighting in what the Lord himself delights in. And so wherever you find yourself at this moment in life, in this season of life, God's will for you is that you be obedient to him right where you are that you'd be a loving husband, a loving wife, good parents to your children, a faithful employee, a faithful employer, that you would walk in integrity in all that you do, that in every vocation of your life, you would seek to work to please God and not man. And in short, that you would love God and that you would love others. Just as our own Lord and Savior Jesus himself summarized the Ten Commandments for us and all the law and the prophets themselves. He summarized in that one phrase. And that's why Paul is so adamant that not only when I am with you, but even more when I am gone, do not neglect this responsibility because this is our our life's calling. This is our our life's work is to please our Father in heaven, to do uh, his, uh, his, his work and to obey his law. This is not a... Uh, uh, nine to five kind of job where we can leave the work in the office and go home. It's not just something that we can do when we come to the church building on a Sunday morning and then leave it here and go home. It's a lifelong thing. It's a continuous thing. It's a, it's a very important thing that we do. It's an immensely important responsibility to obey God's law. And that uh, brings us then to the next element of working out our salvation. Working out our salvation looks like obedience to God's law. And it also, working out our salvation, uh, looks like uh, fear and trembling. Working out our salvation is done with fear and trembling. That's an interesting detail that Paul throws in here. 
can you imagine coming across some kind of job description that had that, that phrase in there? Successful applicants will demonstrate willingness to complete responsibilities with a posture of fear and trembling. Doesn't really make sense in that context because it, it shouldn't make sense if we were talking about responsibilities between employer and employee, but we're not talking about responsibilities between two human parties. We're talking about the responsibilities between a rebellious and wicked people and the living God. As Sinclair uh, Ferguson puts it, he writes that the Christian should always be conscious that he or she is living uh, and lives before the face of God. There should always be a sense of awe in the life of the believer, a sense of living where we are always visible always understood through and through, and amazingly, always loved by the Holy One. Hmm. You see, even when Paul is absent, the Philippians are not alone. We are called to always be working out our salvation in the presence of the One who is at work in us, the One who is working salvation in us. And when we do that, when we understand who we are working for, and all that he has accomplished for us already in Christ, the results of that is a healthy and biblical fear and trembling. See, this is not the fear and trembling of a slave toward a punitive master, but this is the fear of a beloved son and daughter toward their all-powerful, their indescribable, and their ferocious, yet tender, benevolent, Loving Father. You'll remember the the famous uh, C.S. Lewis quote uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Lewis makes this point about God's uh, terrifying awesomeness, if we can uh, call it that. But if you remember Susan, she's talking to Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver's talking about Aslan, and uh, they have not met the lion yet. Uh, Lewis is Christ's uh, figure in that story. Uh, but Susan finds out that Aslan is a lion. And she says, Aslan is a lion? It's a great lion. Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lewis was on to something there. Amos 3.8, the lion has roared, who shall not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, this is the God that we serve. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling because our God is the living God. He is a roaring lion. Our God will not be mocked. He will not clear the guilty. He will not leave wrongdoing unpunished. And yet at the same time, we serve him willingly 
we serve him with gratitude because he is also the one. This is the beauty, the wondrous mystery of the gospel, but he is also the one, the same God is the one who's working in us. It's the third thing we see, that working out our salvation, it's our extraordinary calling, but it's founded on God's extraordinary grace. That's the third element, that everything that we do is because of God's extraordinary grace that he is working inside of us. Now, this is where we can run into some trouble. So let's slow down. Let's spend some more time on this point, and let's start with this. Start with this. Every act involves two things. Every, everything that we do involves two things. Inclination and power. To be able to do something, to be able to do anything at all, you first have to want to do it, and then you also have to be able to do it. I want to play third base for the St. Louis Cardinals. Am I able to do that? So notice then what Paul does in this passage. Neither the inclination nor the power are ultimately found in man. Both are ascribed to God. What are we told that God does? God's, it says that God works in us, but how? Both to will, the inclination, and also to work the power, neither come from us, both come from God. And all of this, Paul concludes, is for God's good pleasure. That's how he ends uh, verse 13. None of it is because God is rewarding any merit in us. It's all for his own good pleasure. Truly, this leaves man with uh, no grounds to boast. It leaves us with nothing at all to rest upon from ourselves that all has to do with the glory of God because he's the one that has accomplished everything. The, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, teaches this truth so beautifully, uh, both explicitly, but also implicitly, implicitly in its very structure. Uh, if, you, if you don't know, the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three uh, main sections, three parts. First part deals with man's sin and misery, deals with our guilt. Second part deals with man's redemption, the salvation that uh, Christ accomplished for us as a result of God's grace. And the third part concerns how the Christian ought to be thankful to God for his salvation or his gratitude. So it's common to hear people sum up the three parts of the catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, as guilt, grace, and gratitude. Which of those sections contains instructions concerning the law of God and the Ten Commandments and obedience to God's commands? Which section? It's in the third part. It's in our gratitude. God's law does not condemn us 
It teaches us how now we can live a life of thankfulness and gratitude for God's salvation. But make no mistake, we've already been saved. So listen to Heidelberg Catechism, question 86. This question begins that third section on gratitude. It asks this, since then, we are redeemed out of our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we do good works? So notice it says, since we are redeemed. This is something that has happened in the past with present and ongoing, ongoing implications. The catechism has already taught us about our guilt. It then taught us about the grace that God has redeemed us. And now it turns to gratitude how we ought to live in light of that amazing redemption that we have in him. And so the very first question, this third section of the catechism brings up is the topic of good works. We, we hear a lot about doing good and obeying God's law throughout the scriptures. It's something we must do, but where does that fit into the Christian life? Well, the catechism teaches us it's because it fits in with uh, the life that we live now that we are saved, a life of gratitude. Since then, we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we do good works? The answer, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that with our whole life, we show ourselves thankful to God for his blessing and that he be glorified through us then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof and by our, by our godly walk when also others to Christ. Now, there's a lot in there. There's, there's three reasons that that answer just gave us for doing good works. We do it because we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to please God. We also do good works to assure us of our own salvation. And we do good works to win over other uh, unbelieving uh, neighbors. And those are all important, but I want to highlight just that middle reason. That our good works assure us of our salvation. See, now we're getting closer to what Paul's talking about here in our passage. I promise I'll tie this all in. But do not miss that distinction that is so important for us to grasp. That our works do not save us, but our works assure us of a salvation that has already been accomplished. You see that difference, that distinction. Westminster makes the same basic point that our good works do not merit salvation, but they are the fruit and evidences of the salvation that God has worked in us. Our good works do not merit salvation, but they are the fruit and evidences of the salvation that God has worked in us. And so bringing us now back to our passage, what does it mean that we work out our salvation? Yes, we, we must work out our salvation. That's what the text says. But what do we mean by that? What does Paul mean by that when he says it? Working out our salvation, simply put, is the work of the Christian life. It is the outworking of God's inworking grace. See, those prepositions are so important. The Christian does not work in himself to save himself or make himself better, but God is the one who works in, 
both to will and to work, and then the Christian works out. Not talking about lifting weights. I'm talking about working out his salvation by demonstrating the reality of God's redemption in his life through the evidences of spirit-wrought good fruits of his obedience to God's law. How do you know you are a Christian? Because you delight in doing the works of your Father in heaven. How will they know that we are Christians? It's by our love for one another, by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. By doing those good works, we identify ourselves with Christ. By doing Christ's works, by doing the works that Jesus did and his earthly ministry, we're identifying ourselves to him. That's what it means to work out our salvation. And this is why it's so important for us to discuss this. Because when we understand it properly, this will protect us from two different errors that we can fall into. It protect us, protects us from a legalism, which is the error we fall into when we think that uh, since I'm called to work out my salvation, then that means that I must be contributing at least a small part to my salvation. No. That was the error of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. That's the error that we fall into as well when we think that we contribute anything to our salvation. Salvation is of the Lord alone. But thinking rightly on this passage and this this doctrine, it also protects us from the twin error of antinomianism, of thinking that there is no law, and that error that we can fall into when we think that uh, if it is God who works in me, then I don't need to work hard at following Christ. No. That's not true either. The freedom we have in Christ is not a freedom to licentiousness. It's not a freedom to indolence. It's not a freedom to be lazy. We are called to follow Christ, to bear our own cross, and to follow him with a biblical spirit of fear and trembling. And so between those two errors, we are given the biblical view of the Christian's life and work. The Christian is obedient to God's law out of gratitude for what has been done, not out of a fear of a punitive God, not out of a a fear or a need to accomplish something and accomplish salvation by ourselves, but we work out our salvation as a response to the love of God who saves us. Again, Sinclair is so helpful. He summarizes this for us. He says, our salvation is God's gift. And then God's gift, it summons us to work out that salvation into every part of our lives. But then we are to work out that salvation into our lives and the confidence that God is always at work in us to achieve that goal. So that's how we do it. How do we work out our salvation? It's through the power of God, who is the one himself who is working in us the whole time. Because God works in us, only then, only after that, do we work out our salvation. Does it reach every aspect of our lives? God works first. He works in us both to will and to work. And then afterward, we do our work. 
Calvin summarizes this concept as well. He says that God is the one who brings to perfection those pious dispositions which he has implanted in us, that they may not be unproductive. So you see those, those two parts about, about uh, acting, uh, you see both of them there. That God implants us the pious dispositions, he plants those inclinations in our hearts, in our lives. But then he also brings those pious dispositions, those inclinations that he's planted in us. He uses his power to bring those out and bring them to perfection, both our will and our work. It's the same promise of Ezekiel 11, uh, 20, that I will cause them to walk in my commandments. You see, God is the primary actor. He's the primary worker in all of this. And so working out our salvation, that is our extraordinary calling that we have as Christians. And it is a high calling. The Ten Commandments, those are, those are difficult. Those are not easy. It's not, a, it's not a low bar. It's a very high bar. But the good news is that we do not do it from our own strength, but from God's extraordinary grace in our lives. That's what propels us forward in every instance and in every circumstance. So those are the three elements that we see from our text about working out our salvation. We work out our salvation through obedience to God's law with fear and trembling, but always resting on and finding our strength in the power of God, who is always at work in us first, both inclining our wills to desire him and empowering us to do that which he desires. And that is why we must spend time here in this section, in this passage, on these verses, meditating on what it means. It truly is an astonishing reality, but one that we can so easily forget. And unfortunately, we see this error uh, so often. And it's our, our human tendency. We, we think that we need to be doing something. We must be contributing anything. It gets back to our own pride or our own uh, insecurities that, that we have to be resting on our own strength. But there's no peace there. There's no rest there. The only rest we have is in Christ Jesus, who obeyed the law on our behalf, whose righteousness was imputed to us, and now we are accepted as righteous in God's sight. See, the Almighty, he has already declared his verdict upon you. He said, not guilty. You are clothed in the righteousness of my beloved son, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, because of what Christ has done for you, you are free. You are not guilty. You have been set free. And so the question then that remains for every single one of us here is what will we do with that freedom? We have the privilege and the opportunity to use that freedom to live for Christ. And so work out that salvation in your life. Make it evident in all of your thoughts and works and deeds that Christ truly died for you. 
and that you have given your life to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, words cannot express how thankful we are for that amazing salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. By your Spirit, you have worked faith in us. You have enabled us to grab hold of Christ as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. And so now, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would empower us to live lives of gratitude and thankfulness for this amazing salvation this incredible redemption that we have in your Son and our Lord. We pray that we would never look to our own strength, but that we would never look to anywhere in the world, but we would look to you only, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would live our lives holy and pleasing to you, sacrifice of praise, lips proclaiming and praising your name always in all that we do. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.